Welcome to the Crash Chords Podcast. I'm John. I'm Steve. And I'm Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. You enjoy that way too much. I do. It's, it's I, I like okay. my alias, or my alter ego, or my stage name, or my... Oh my I've alias, run out of words. Mm, alias isn't really the right term, because it would be what people know you as, and they wouldn't know your actual identity. They're, well, um, yeah, that's true. And I mean, most people who know me through Brother, even they call me Stormageddon, do know me in my muggle life. I made finger oh, quotes. Okay. Muggle life is acceptable. It no, is acceptable. Yes, yes it not. is. It's more acceptable than Alias. I know. Now I prefer Alias in hindsight. <laughs> are you yes! saying? Are you saying he doesn't make magic up up there, spinning the? Tunes? I'm absolutely nobody saying spins that. anything anymore. Well, that's not true. But I don't spin anything. It's all digital. Anyway, what are we doing, John? Today we are going to be once again diving into electronica, and it's a topic I love bringing up again and again and again because electronica isn't. A real genre. At the end of the day, it's it's not. It's just an umbrella for a genre. And for all of those ideas. people who are fans of Electronica and want to send their hate mail, please send it to John Sanders at CrashCourse.com. That's done. I have an argument as to why it's not a genre. <laughs> it's not a genre per se because it's more an aesthetic ideal. It's merely an umbrella term to quantify things that are emulating other types of genres. You can get electronica that is very much rock or very much disco or very much dance or you rap. You brought on uh, Glitch Mob back in episode 91. That was kind of rockish to me. Also mm-hmm. a little bit cinematic. And you, I brought on Deep Chord, which was... Terrible. A, a bit, a, not a great Aww. album. <laughs> Uh, it was ambient. It was boring, minimalistic. <laughs> all right, all right. I'm using right. neutral descriptors. Fair here, enough. All right. Fair enough. Um, he has his time. Let's give him his <laughs> yeah, time. Yeah, fair enough. But the way we we qualify other things like rock and roll or classical music or jazz, electronica, you have to always add on a bunch of writers because as long as you're making it with a synthesizer, it's you're electronic. Making, it, it's electronic. Yeah, it's yeah. electronica. So I, I love exploring just the different avenues of the aesthetic of electronica. And today I brought on something that is another one of those different avenues. Monument Builders by Los Sill. Los Sill. So Los Sill is the one-man project. The one man is Scott Morgan. He's a Vancouver native. And as far as I can tell, he's an electronic and ambient uh, producer, mostly. That's, that's his bag. Plus, I believe he's also done... He was a drummer in an indie rock band called Destroyer at one point. And I believe also his electronic work has uh, allowed him to do some things for video games. So he's done some soundtrack work, and he's released a lot of albums of his own. And his name, Los Sill, it's kind of an odd name, it's taken from Looping Oscillator, which is actually an operation code on C sound, which is a programming language for music making. And the software itself is free as long as you can write for it. Otherwise, you can use a front end to help you out. But just to give you an idea of what distinguishes C sound from more user friendly music making software, it's quite a bit more fundamental. It's also modular, it's extendable, it's less about selecting tones from a predefined palette of presets. It's an advanced, meticulous, programming savvy means of composition. There's tons of literature out in this stuff, but allow me to just read an excerpt of the intro to the C sound manual because it might give you an insight into what I assume is Scott Morgan's day to day. 
So for the layman, a music programming system is a complete software package for music making with computers. It not only provides the means of defining the sequence of events that make up a musical performance with great precision, but it also enables us to define the audio signal processing operations involved in generating the sound to a very fine degree of detail and accuracy. Software such as C-Sound offers an environment for making music from the ground up, from the very basic elements that make up sound waves and their spectra to the higher levels of music composition concerns such as sound object, uh, notes, textures, harmony, gestures, phrases, sections, etc. So that's C-Sound for you. Pretty, pretty fundamental. So uh, essentially what C-Sound is, is if we hit the singularity and AI is truly achieved, they will be able to use that to make us obsolete in arts as well. Uh, yes, that's exactly what <laughs> in, I could... In musical what I took arts. From it. In musical arts. <laughs> no, yeah, they're already making us obsolete in other arts, so... That's right. Actually, recently they did do a... I think a, a computer can make a pop song now, which yes. isn't like a far way to go, but now they can make a pop song at least. And I think that they had a, a program that made poetry also, a computer program that after inserting commonly used phrases and setups that's, made made a poem. That's even easier to believe than yeah. a pop song. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, first of all, looping oscillator is actually just one of the many capabilities of C-Sound. It's an opcode, which is an operation code, specifically a sample-based wavetable synthesizer with looping, which I believe can be achieved by either replacing or modifying the oscill or oscillator opcode. And these opcodes are considered among the core synthesis technologies behind many of today's most popular commercial synthesizers. So it, it, it's not meant to stand on its own. If, if you know what you're doing, you can use it in tandem with other opcodes and you can create whatever you want. And uh, doing so, C-Sound advertises, will take you far beyond any commercial implementation. So, uh, <laughs> in fact, this whole thing should just read, the sky's the limit. Thank you for using C-Sound. Here is your scepter. It's <laughs> well, yeah, good, yeah. It's also important to explain that this album is actually inspired by something else. Uh, it's inspired by the score by Philip Glass for the indie film, and I'm going to butcher this one, Koyaniskatsi. Good enough. Yeah, it's one of a trilogy of, of, of weird pieces, but Philip Glass, if you don't know anything, has done a couple of scores over the years, a couple dozen scores over the years. He's done many well more as, than just scores. He's, yes, he's a, the leading uh, figure in the contemporary you know, classical scene, but yeah. Exactly, and that's what I was going to get to. He's written operas, he's written full orchestra pieces, he's done everything from the ground up, two-piece violin sets, three-piece. I took a just a quick gander of his list of works, and it's uh, it's it's hundreds of pieces long. Yeah, so, I mean, just the idea that this album is not based off it, but inspired by, by it, yeah. is that yeah. the idea? It shows you the, the breadth of his influences, and I think it's also safe to conclude that his name uh, is a nod to his preferred means of composition, which is why I went in the C-Sound rant, and I guess his value of it. Uh, it's, it's a really fascinating world, a fringe world, which I partially regret uh, pursuing, but it also sounds like a lot of work. So, Well, I mean, anything worth doing is worth doing anything, right. Anything, that is true. Good words. I try. <laughs> Not my quote, but but I'll take it. Um, um, a slight aside, uh, the podcast I've mentioned on here a few times, the Ice Cream Social, they have this gag now online where they give actual famous quotes, but then they put Paul Mattingly under it. So it's like he said that famous quote with a picture of Paul Mattingly. So they're essentially discrediting those quotes yeah. in a gag. Anyway, so next time you find a picture of Steve on the internet, put... A quote that doesn't make sense. I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying here. <laughs> anyway, um, but yeah, I think it's interesting also to talk about how music is made for an album before we review it, because we don't always do that. I mean, sometimes it's obvious if we're doing a pop band or, you know, a straight up rock band, it's kind of obvious how the music is made. But here, 
actually discussing a program used to make this album, at least on its own, if not with other stuff. It's and I'm, really I'm only assuming that. I, I, I'm putting two and two together that, that right. that's probably the, his preferred means of composition. But he well, also has included some uh, acoustic instruments in his works. He's invited some uh, session musicians to come by and just sort of improvise over his works as kind of a little added touch, but he sort of leaves it in, in their hands at that point. He's, he's done all sorts of things. And if we're going to talk about precision and the fact that uh, this programming language of music that you just described, uh, it shows in this work here itself. It, it shows that he's got a little bit more of a, a touch than I come to expect with a lot of electronica artists who are using preordained, you know, compositional pieces, preordained, you know, programs that tell you, you can do this, you can't do that, because that's not how this was programmed. The fact that he's writing essentially in C++ and expanding <laughs> from there to make his music, I'm seeing that actually show up in some of his work. Yeah, it's uh, pretty interesting. It also shows, I mean, his name, Looping Oscillator, it shows you're going to get oscillations. It right. shows that that's kind of going to be a core figure here. And indeed it does when we start off with the first track, Drained Lake, which is actually the longest track on the album. It's 6 minutes and 47 seconds. And just without focusing too much on the title yet, for starters, the intro here reminded me very much of another work that we did uh, way back in episode 133, Solon's Ark by Kangding Ray. I believe it's the last time we covered a mostly ambient work, and the textures of that intro in that album actually brought me to many of the same words that come to mind here. The use of wind and metallic effects. God help us, though, if we can avoid using the term bleak throughout this album, but there is a sort of a darker element throughout it. Well, I'll start off by comparing this visually to something else. So for me, the way that the drone that this piece starts with is really interesting because the hum kind of resonates again you said against almost like a metallic kind of shell yeah reminds me more of like a large mode of transportation what i mean is not just your car or truck but like a large train or cruise ship but being alone in that space with just pure silence and the hum of the motor reverberating through the floors and it gives this kind of movement to it, even though it's not fast-paced by any means at this point. But that's the thing. The fact that it was so much slower is why I didn't really get a semblance of machinery or right. anything. I, I, I got I got vacancy, just like a big wide open space. And the okay. reason I, I, I honed in on, on uh, wind and, and metal is because I felt kind of like I was in a wind tunnel or maybe I was mm. hearing, you know, an abandoned oil pipeline or something because everything is so slow paced. I mean, the oscillation itself takes about 50 seconds to complete that first wave. And to me, that hints at a certain vastness. And of course, at some point, you do have to return to the title. He wanted us to think of a drained lake. And to that, I'd say, sure, it's as good as any other visualization I suppose. Right. I mean, it doesn't speak against the, the sense I got of being in an empty space and hearing a hum around yeah. you. I mean, if you were in a large, massive ditch, yeah. like a drained lake, you would probably still hear the same kind of thing. But the fact that the pitch actually changes over that oscillation, it feels like there's still movement involved. Yeah. Because, yes, I could see the plane analogy that you're building up here, but it would also feel like the engines may be revving up or slowing down yeah. from time to time. Or if you're talking about a large expanse if you're if you're going for a visualization of like maybe a drained lake or maybe just a large open space uh, it feels like the walls are still changing around you yeah uh, a large warehouse or something like yeah. that it can be vast and far away and you can't see one end but that wall behind you still is going to change the way echoes play with you and that's what he's doing here he's changing with the echoes he's changing with the 
the oscillations, it's it's allowing this drone to not be a drone per se, but more of a really, really long rhythm section. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I think what's also really interesting is that we kind of have something on the face of it, at least at first look, pretty bare. You know, there's not a lot here. It's 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 left for you to kind of fill in the blanks on your own what? because we don't even get really any kind of synth that sounds anywhere near a melody until about a minute. And it's not, not even really a melody. Not until around 57 seconds yeah. in. Uh, More precise. That's why, yeah, <laughs> beyond that vastness again. I mean, I'm poised to think that if it is a drained lake, it's a big lake whose drainage might be the result of some kind of cataclysm, you know, or whose drainage might bring about some cataclysm to the immediate area. I don't know. But that's all you really have to sit with for that first minute. And then finally, 50 seconds in, you get these tones. You still have the basic oscillation underneath, but now you actually have a theme. And there's nothing particularly odd about that theme yet. It's sort of a somber little ditty in minor, actually just set about a quarter of the way between C and C sharp. That's about the only oddity. Otherwise, it's a recurring theme. It's uh, stated several times in slightly different ways, I think. Actually, no, I think it's the same way over and over. But it, it has a regular pulse, a pulse which is really brought out soon after about two minutes when you actually get this drum and bass combo. Yeah, the beat really comes in there. Uh, that that theme though it it's very impactful for me even as low key as it is because still it's it's it is very opposed to the the hollowness that we've gotten to the drone that we've already gotten but more importantly for me this kind of keyboard esque kind of a feel it's got going it echoes outward it echoes in such a way that it feels like it's actually impacting onto onto you it's it's coming from far away and hitting you right in the face but the way a pillow would, not 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 a fist, not not heavy, not hard, but just soft little pulses right right in the temple. I mean, there's a sense of collision here, which which is definitely brought on by that. But I think also as we approach the halfway point of this track, what's interesting is all of these things that come in, the you know from the hum to the synth, from the synth to the beat, from the beat to as it builds. These, these moments are all staggered and, and slow going. Like, we don't rush ahead, and there's no variation. It's literally no. one thing, then the next thing, and then the next thing. But what's interesting is within those things that are introduced, there is surgical-like precision changes on a minor, minor scale. That is and a that's good really interesting. Because, yeah, it's a limited palette of things to focus on. Mm -hmm on the broad scale, like right. if you're looking at just everything. And then, yeah, you'd say not a lot is really going on in this track. It's an ambient track. You're meant to dwell. It's, it's, it's ambient music. Go figure. Of course, you're meant to dwell. You're supposed to sit back and sort of just take it in all at once. But yet, you wouldn't think that in ambient music, you actually have to like focus on the details because there are multiple layers of oscillations taking place, which, mm -hmm. again, I assume was all achieved by his own coding language. I'm, I'm not positive about that, but that would probably achieve the surgical precision that you just alluded to. Yeah, it's, it's just interesting that typically when we've got uh, electronic artists who do this, it, it's way more sparse and, and kind of haphazard almost, whereas here it feels very intentional. And at the approximate two minute forty second mark, we get we get another tone that I found to be like as gripping as ambient can be. 
<laughs> I guess for this piece, it's a tapping tone, but has a little bit of a harsh as almost a metallic edge to it. It's it's high pitched. It's, it's kind of unnerving, really. A high register pulse with the with the tick with the tap, but it's sort of in line with the of the windiness from the intro. But when combined with the clicking and and the the pitch bending effect, which may or may not actually be leaving our predefined key of C quarter sharp minor, it's it's certainly meant to rattle you a bit. In fact, it, it's a little further in it felt like there were slight pauses in the high pitch almost like dragging a pipe along concrete like every once in a while it'll hit a, it'll hit a bump and then the pipe will go airborne and then it'll start dragging again so of course the pausing is very organized rhythmically but that was a really nice element meanwhile the theme gets restated in the high, higher register and then we sit there for a while and with all these different lines playing off of one another but really working at their own bpm it allows different parts that are exactly the same as before, where whether it's that tapping, scraping metal pipe, whether it's the bass tones, as they come in and are put it up against a different piece, because they're not lining up rhythmically, you know, perfectly, it's allowing these very consistent tone lines to change without actually changing. It's, it's allowing them to flourish and do different things while still remaining very low-key without really breaking the, the idea of the calm, the peacefulness of this mm -hmm. piece. And it's, it's doing stuff just by, by creating timing effects as opposed to pitch bends or anything like that. It's, it's all in the timing. But that's until about 4.10, 4 minute 10 seconds when we do get a release. It finally does kind of exhale into kind of Almost as if it's, the track is draining, oh, like a lake. Sorry. <laughs> that had to be said. Right. Uh, but it, it's kind of an interlude here, but then it leads to sort of a transition, I felt, after about 35 seconds of that. Yeah. So for the interlude, most things have kind of just cut out here, except for a very pared down drum beat and two drones, a bass drone and a high pitch drone, both just blaring out our home key of that slightly, slightly sharp C minor. And we do that for a while, until about 35 seconds afterwards, the high-pitched C bends upward, just a whole step, and slowly bends upward to a D. And then at, it does that in tandem with the bass, the lower tone, which doesn't necessarily bend. That one actually kind of raises on a dime. Boom, boom, and we go up, raises just a, a minor third from C to E flat. And so that unison that we originally had of those two Cs set apart have now raised us up to a fairly unexpected major seventh interval, which I confess was the first truly compelling moment on this, on this track for me. You could almost mentally fill in the gaps and imagine it as a minor relative major uh, progression, this minor one, uh, three major seven chord, but I still don't really feel chords, I just feel intervals, and we just oscillate between those those two uh, chords for either maybe four or six times before finally getting a restatement of our opening theme, and yeah, it turns it, back to the A. It pretty much loops into its beginning, which, I mean, is not unheard of for, for electronica, but it's still kind of, I like the way this song feels cyclical. It gives the track a solidity that you know, I don't know that was necessarily ever present from the beginning, but I like the way it kind of culminates. I actually saw it a little bit differently. That pitch bend was a real elevation in the overall mood of the track because I was feeling mm. calm. I was feeling almost nothing. Not exactly nothing, but it was... I was feeling drained, honestly. Yeah. That's what the track tells me to do. Maybe a little exhausted, maybe a mm -hmm. little bit... Not like I just ran a mile, but more I'm 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 well, at a very peaceful. Down. Well, I'm at a very peaceful place. But this mood elevation I went through did bring a lot of happiness to the track. And when it restated his theme, I saw that theme. I saw that opening riff in a completely different manner. It it kind of 
it kind of solidified it as a lot happier than it had been originally presented. I as. wouldn't define this piece in terms of happy or sad or anything of the like. I think I think actually at that moment it just added a little bit of intrigue. It mm-hmm. it was a sense of motion that you don't really get a sense of it all if you just take the whole entire track in kind of like at a glance. Yeah. If you just sort of are sitting there and you're not paying keen attention to it, then the whole thing can just kind of wash over you and you'd be like, well, that was uh, relaxing. Or that was kind of, you know, deadening. And you might just go back to these default words uh, as you consider the track as a whole or consider the album as a whole. But if you pay close attention, you will find those little details. And I think at the end of the day, it it ended up being a much more formed piece than Mm -hmm. I've encountered in a lot of ambient music. I feel like very often they're relying so much on instinct, such as in the case of, let's say, a recent album we did, Tim Hecker. Yeah. Uh, Love Streams by Tim Hecker back in episode 213. That was very... It felt a little bit impulsive. I do believe he had his own organization to it, but it was in many ways more complex, but it lacked the sense of resolution or the sense of organization that this track, which at a glance doesn't seem like it would have, really did have. It was a perfectly formed, meticulously constructed computer electronica piece. My critiques of it are, ironically, the track's predictability. A part of me almost longs for the abstractions of Tim Hecker and perhaps some some more variety in terms of what's forefront and what's not. Uh, it may be compelling in, in some instances, but there was nothing particularly shocking about the track, and I suspect that was the point. Yeah, and I mean, also, that I think comes back to the surgical precision, which I mentioned earlier, which will be more noticeable and less noticeable later in the album. And I think that's really where your diversity is going to come from, yep. you know, not from the what stands out at a glance. True. Um, that said, why don't we move on to track two, Red Tide, which starts completely differently from the previous track. It's way more in your face with this kind of wavy synth that starts pretty much from the beginning to be pretty omnipresent. It's a little bit threatening. It's almost like an 80s action thriller now. Like, we're running. It's Running Man with Arnold Schwarzenegger screaming out, Kelly in! (laughs) And we're going for it. But uh, Red Tide, it probably should be said, there is a meaning behind that title. Red Tide is a phenomena where algae of a specific type who I'm not even going to try to butcher this name. That's fine. Um... Mixed with the nitrogen that becomes infused in the waters and creates a reddish-brownish hue to the water itself. Now, it's a natural occurring phenomena in many parts of the world, but it also tends to happen around agricultural waste runoff, farms and things like that, because there tends to be a lot of nitrogen imbalances in these areas. Well, it would follow that that's probably the idea behind this, considering we had the environmental uh, connection of drained lake. So I, mm-hmm. I imagine he wants, us to, he wants to put us in that place. And there is something threatening to it. it it's a harmful phenomenon. So they would follow that the beginning is meant to sort of set you on edge a little bit. And we're still stuck in that slightly sharp thing, although the now it's not in slightly sharp uh, C minor, it's slightly sharp uh, G minor. And we're rapidly arpeggiating in the bass end, sort of this scale arpeggiation combo, actually. We don't cover a lot of grounds in terms of register, but we're hitting enough notes that the chords actually come across pretty strongly. But they don't remain stagnant, as opposed to the previous track where they did they did uh, no variations in, in the long form. Here, the pitch is subtly changing. The texture of the pieces are subtly changing. But it's a very hard thing to actually hear on that first li- or second or even third listen through. You're, you're going to be able to hear rises and falls. The pitch itself is 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 one thing. But the texture, there's yep. a softening of edges or hardening of edges that... You, you don't notice because other things do come in. The background specifically, 
the very long form, almost a hymn hum. I, I would liken it to almost the vocals of a choir humming mm. because of how just pervasive it feels. But it's so background that even those changes, and it does go through slight bends and slight pitches, are, are almost non-detectable. Well, the thing that is most dominant is, of course, the, the chord changes. I mean, those after not too long, you know, we go from G minor into, like, major six, and then we go back and forth from there. So it's a very nice cadence-based theme, but that's and that's sort of the overall sensation. But all the synths, even the higher synth, which is actually probably more responsible for establishing those chordal changes, sometimes feel like they're about to destabilize, like they're always on the brink of freefall. And I think that has to do with the constant oscillation, which is sort of what John was describing, these subtle oscillations in everything. Everything quivers, but then of course everything vibrates in music, so it's just it's just more perceptible here. He's exaggerating the sort of the 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 natural elements in something that is actually rather unnatural. But to focus here on the things that are most noticeable, around a minute and 40 seconds, we do resolve to G, G kind of minor, and then that running man motif is suddenly slathered in static. So it gets a lot more uh, terrifying, a little more thriller-based. And then another thing that leaps out in this section was that sort of brighter, more piano-like echo of those synth chords, which was a really nice contrast to the static. It was the first textural choice that I felt came with some reason as opposed to just consistency. Like, it juxtaposed, it didn't just conflict, it was more of a pleasing sensation, and the same goes for what immediately follows it. We resolve some ideas that start appearing in this same section. Right around 2 minutes, 30 seconds, horns, or the idea of horns uh, It felt like a real horn. It almost yeah. felt like this could actually be a sample of, of, of a session musician just playing one note. It could be it'd be electronic brass, I don't know, but it, it this was a really nice blend. But it's one note sparsely for a good portion of this track. And it showed up earlier, I heard it earlier, just just little quiet ideas of this same thing that shows up so forcefully here. And it starts doing its own little rhythm section. So now we're actually getting a combination of three different ideas. The original bass, the original hymn shifts, and now this horn section that these different ideas are not lining up against one another. They may still be within the same overall time frame, but the rhythms of these three pieces are almost fighting against one another and really contrasting each other very, very beautifully. Well, the thing for me at this point is that those horns kind of are reminiscent of like a, a, a foghorn or a longhorn in a yeah in a boat, mostly because it's called red tide, so my mind yeah. shifts to the sea. You're in that place. But that said, like I think what's interesting also is if you're not focusing on multiple things at once, almost to the point of crossing your eyes, you will miss something. Because like at this point in the song. The earlier stuff that John had mentioned, those minor shifts, I completely missed. But upon multiple lists, I was able to pick apart these different little things. But if your mind veers for even a moment, yeah. it's very easy to lose some of the meticulous intricacies yeah. of this track. If there was brass earlier, then I did not notice it right. on my several listens to this album. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm so far pretty satisfied with the building here. I yeah. think it's, it's... 
again, there's not so much of a statement of theme in the same way as there was in the last track, but the combinations of things, the bright piano percussiveness, the distorted bass run, and these long, stately brass utterances that just billow up and gain strength before releasing, you know, but playing really only every couple of measures or so, usually in tandem with the piano strike, it all lent some grandeur, some excitement to this album. And on a personal note, I appreciated this section because it meant this wasn't necessarily another bleak electronic dystopia, which we've seen so much of. There was something of interest, something shiny to look at in this world. Now, at 4 minutes and 12 seconds, the bass run finally ceases. And now it's just the drones, the brass, and the piano that own the show. And the brass here, interestingly, is playing a lot quicker. It's about eight notes to its previous one. But it also is easing us out for the track itself. Yeah. It's, it's sort of, while it is speeding up, it's also slowing down everything else. It's almost like it. everything else gets... Uh, Retarded. Oh by yeah, it's, its, it's idea. not speeding. I mean, yeah, you get more of those brass tones, but everything is much more relaxed here because yeah. the the chords number one start to get really, really interesting at this moment. But it is—it is sort of fading because once you've lost that that bass uh, that bass run, then you don't really have the the terror if that's what you wanted to call the. It becomes sections. more light and airy. It almost feels like not to say that the rest of the track was cluttered, but it's the idea of physical clutter or stuff yeah. falling on the way, falling away from something rising out of it. Almost like all that stuff was kind of washed away no, with the receding I, I, tide I, 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 and da da da, da 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 My point is... <laughs> imagery, but the, the imagery is there. That's the whole thing. Right. It, it, it made it kind of almost feel like the rest of the track had this imminence to it that then kind of just fades as the track ends. And so whatever... If you were running from something, it's gone. It disappeared. I don't, and I don't know that it's necessarily these are hard facts. It's just kind of ways you could kind of interpret it. Yeah, or if, it's, it's, if it's gone, you're left with the aftermath. There's right. still, there's still the contemplation. There's still yeah. all of that stuff here. But I do the, like the fact that I get to sort of focus a little more on the brass yeah. because it's more prominent in having lost the other things, and you get a little bit more of it. And it's just oscillating or just really going back and forth between two notes. Right. And in doing so, it's very calm, if still a bit somber. It's one of those tracks that it ends and feels complete, but in a different way that Drain Lake felt complete, you know? At this point, at least, he's not showing all his cards. He's got a few tricks up his sleeve, and that's really interesting. It's what I think keeps me going on this at this point on this record. Yeah, and one more note about those chords. You know, we don't change chords often, but when we do, there is weight to it. Mm -hmm. And it really starts to develop in the latter portion of this track. So, yeah. I, w I was quite intrigued by the by the build and then the fade. It was a satisfying arc. From here, we'll go on to the title track of the record, Monument Builders. Um, so, uh, just thematically, based on the titles alone, we've got this idea of a lake being drained, a red tide happening, and now building a monument. So, it's kind of this um, nature versus industry feel almost. That's not necessarily set in stone, but there's an idea of that at least. The metallic things that we've yeah. gotten here and there occasionally lead me to feeling like there's a human hand. Well, but... if, you, if you want to talk human, I mean, here we get a... It's not four heartbeats. It's three and a half heartbeat section. It's dun da dun da dun done and then a hard hard clip this is what we're introduced to with this track a almost deadening silence for just half a moment there that it's, is very jarring it's kind of a shudder to a stop mm -hmm. it's, it's really an interesting sequence of events actually i mean the tone itself is rather warm which in stereo it favors the left ear but it's as if the tone it's as if a string was struck 
only to vibrate rapidly and then begin to fade away, but not allowed to fade away entirely, almost as if someone reached out and halted the vibration. And this occurs many times over, but it's disconcerting because the silence is so stark. Like, acoustic analogies are barely even relevant. It's more like the clip was hard spliced, no fade, no decay, nothing of the like. And then a mysterious clicking sound that occurs in the interim before we strike again, which felt like someone had actually pressed stop on a tape deck. So honestly, I don't know which analogy is appropriate, acoustic, analog, mechanical, or digital, but we do this over and over again for, again, about a minute. Yeah, and I, I will say, leading up to that minute, I was not happy with this track, only because it's so harshly clipped that it's, it, like John said, it, 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 it's really harsh, and you can't really ignore it. It's jarring because that's the intention. It's supposed to be a hard cut. And I was like, God, if I have to do more, a whole song of this, I'm going to go nuts. But it does start to shift around the minute mark. It, it, it a little. shifts a little bit even before that, but it's so hard to detect. You get a, a, a blushing sound from those horns we got in the previous track. It's it's almost like the, the heartbeat is starting to warm up and it's starting to get uh, humanized in, in, in some way because that really harsh clip is mechanical is like you said it's 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 not something that feels very natural but the way these horns start playing on top of it or the way this this sound starts playing on top of it it the humanizing effect it has uh, does a lot to really allow me to get into the track itself in spite of just that the the deadening silences between each of these sections well yeah because we get that new tone at about a minute 08 and over the course of each successive strike a melody begins to take shape following that, using these harsh cuts. And I absolutely loved the, you know, even just the second strike. Because the first thing I, sh I should say is probably something about the pitch here. This is the first track that actually doesn't seem to be in that slightly sharp area anymore. We're not between, you know, how I said we were like between C and C sharp about a quarter of the way through it in the beginning. Well, we're not there anymore. In the second track, we were the same thing. We were a little bit above, above G, but relative to the previous key, it all kind of blended, but now we've kind of returned to G minor proper. So we're not slightly sharp anymore, we're on the money, and I find it interesting because the feel of the last track and the feel of this track, between the two, we've modulated south just that slight but noticeable distance of a quarter of a sharp. But here's the interesting part, you get that that tone, right? And then using these harsh, harsh cuts, you create a melody out of it. Here it is, you get the opening tone, B flat, and that defeated pullback of just a half step on that second strike. B flat, that gives us the G minor feel, and we fall back to A. And the bass is still at G here, so there's that second interval, or the ninth, what have you, and then down further to E flat, and then down to D, and we resolve in the perfect fifth. So altogether, your melody is flat three, two, flat six, five. Nothing crazy, but broken by those accents, it's kind of fearsome, and it's Overall, it's, it's bold. I generally find that when you're sacrificing busyness here, then boldness can go a long way. And that's what this very short, again, four-note melody actually achieves. And what's interesting about this track is it's returning to a similar form of the first track in that everything comes in kind of one after the other. There isn't a ton of intermingling until everything's there. Yeah. Like we said, the beat gets filled and everything. But up until that moment when we kind of have the cacophony of everything together... It is one and then another element and then another yeah. element, which I like that kind of a build. It allows you to kind of accept everything. And the fact that I started in a place of kind of disdain for the track almost because I was just so annoyed by the loop and cut, it made 
the instrumentation of the track so much more interesting when it got to its biggest part of the build because then I kind of was turned around on the track. I started off not liking it, and then when I saw the purpose, I went, oh, I get it. Because it's a blending element. He's yeah. filling the gaps. And actually, even before he starts filling the gaps with synth, there was actually one other instrument that also kind of fills the gaps, or at least it seemed to last around, uh, it seemed to last long enough. And it came sort of at the same exact time as the very first note of that melody. And that was sort of a howling in the background. This another oscillation that just sort of enters in with this haunting synth, very far off, kind of toward the right ear, but high up, and it takes the fifth, and then it bends upward, haunting, almost prehistoric, something out of Heart of Darkness. I think, all told with this track, where I'm kind of at with it at this point, and as we move in towards the tail end of the track, I wasn't quite sure where to place it, but I was brought around to enjoy it. But then when the, the horns really come in at their fullest force, some other stuff cuts out that creates this kind of somber tone for the remainder of the track. It's sort of a second, like, a secondary plaintive theme, and yeah. this time it's the brass. So the brass comes back, and we haven't had it since the last track, really, and it's just this descent on the minor scale from flat six down to, uh, down to two. It's a simple but kind of effective, uh... Uh, motif, considering just the sheer fact that he uses a five-note cycle. It's not four, you know, you don't really feel that, that sense of everything has to be organized in four. Previous tracks, and even the earlier portions, it still felt like you could count this in four, but then it, you have that five-note cycle there, so flat six, five, four, flat three, two, and then granted, meter is like barely of consequence on this album anyway, but it's nice to feel the free-form nature of it. And then we just hammer home the D that the entire track opened with at the end. And as John mentioned earlier, the kind of humanizing nature of that horn, when mixed with the heartbeat, really does kind of bring the song home to feel very natural, even though in the start, it didn't really start from a place that felt natural. But I like the idea that we started at a mechanical idea of it as a very rigid structure, and another element was injected into it to naturalize it. But the very fact that it was naturalized made it become somber, made it become downward in in the emotional scale. It's it's a weird kind of place to start at where we were very rigid and we were we weren't really feeling anything. The idea yeah. that by injecting the the natural idea or injecting warmth and and making it feel human like, at least, made it at least feel somber. Sad at least was, somber was humanizing. Yeah, but, yeah. but it, it, it felt like a real solid emotion. That's the whole thing. It didn't start off as somber though, right. and that was what that's I love so much, much about saying, it. Yeah. That by going from that four to a five kind of beat system or note system, that little turn made it become something that felt oh. I can connect with this to, oh, I don't want to connect with this anymore. Yeah. And we're talking specifically about the bit like the beginning and the end, because I do, I would say I started to feel something around the time the first melody yeah. came in, but especially the second so that goes down that half step. That was really But it really hammers it to, home towards yeah. the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I, that's, I mean, I, the reason I mentioned that howling in the background is because I did get a sense of coldness there, which was sure. about as powerful to me as the somber brass outro. So... Uh, one other thing, I mean, the fact that you bring back the D at the end, I yeah. should just say that we have another case of a track being bracketed by essentially the same exact motif. You have it at the beginning, you have it at the end, so you still feel like you've gone through a giant A, B, C, A, sort of. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, at this point, I will say that's kind of a little bit of a negative because it does yeah, need to come up it's again. It's kind of what I said in the first track. It's, it's a little bit of a predictable nature. At, at first, he didn't show all his cards, but now he has shown quite a few of them, and some of them he's leaning on pretty heavy. But we'll get into that more as we go. I think this is a good transition point for track four, Straw Dogs. 
which, and i got to explain another name going on here. <laughs> Straw Dogs is most likely, not definitely, but most likely a reference to straw man and straw man arguments because the term straw dogs is a similar idea where you're specifically setting up a project to fail so that another project will succeed. It's kind of like a decoy idea and, and a more fleshed out idea. And the decoy idea's failure is to boast the actual idea you're going for. Exactly. <laughs> so we're considering working... I didn't know that originally, though, considering I didn't know about the straw dog, I mean, I knew about the straw man argument, but the straw dog thing I wasn't sure of, so I actually pictured a straw dog. <laughs> a dog really, made of straw. And it's just been considering that the track opens with this somewhat barren 12-second-long oscillation, just this low hum, fade in, peak, fade out. Then I couldn't help but picture this horrific image, maybe a painting of a dog made out of straw, f- just like fade from black into view, and then fade from view back into black. And it, it might be a mostly benign image if it wasn't for the setup of the music. Now suddenly I have a fear of straw dogs. <laughs> so, <laughs> But something interesting to say about that drone, is this the first time really on, a, uh, on the drone in the intro of a track that you can noticeably tell it's waxing and waning? Yeah. In previous encounters with the drones that he's provided, You'd have to really focus to notice it. Here it's very apparent that it's coming closer and then yeah. going further And the away. first one, you know, lasts quite a long time. It lasts those yeah. whole 12 seconds. And then around 13 seconds in, the oscillation returns, but it has inconsistent intervals this time, mm-hmm. which was a little bit interesting. Plus, we have kind of a brass theme again. Pretty standalone, though, between the drone and the, and the brass. It's, there's not a whole lot of context for emotion again. It feels a little bit empty, but also anticipatory. Like, it's all, something's coming. Something's in the works. And I guess that's the idea of the track. It's still a very slow progression in general, so you have to have patience. It's not until a minute and 40 seconds, actually, that the bass is added, which comes in with the rhythm one and four, one and four. Again, Single notes. Single notes, actually, and that was something I noticed right away about it. It wasn't doing any of the changing... No change in pitch, nothing there. Just a steady line. It's, again, somewhat like a... A little bit like a thriller to me, but it's all just part of the setup, like a slow crawl toward the title screen. Well, because of... Besides those things that you, you've mentioned already, the rest of the track was fairly minimal and, and almost like hollow, the way the tones rang. And it gave this kind of, I don't know if I want to say urgency. I mean, yeah, I guess I do want to say it gave the sense of urgency as it progressed because the way the beat kind of impacted with that unchanging rhythm, it, it really made you feel like you were rushing towards something or away from something. Actually, it even completely changed the rhythm yeah. for me because... The, the long quivers, uh, those vibrations to silence, that was that felt like he was trying to replicate like a classical idea of using a string section for the rhythm section. So when the bass jumps in, like rhythm completely changed now, mm. even though the time signature hasn't changed at all. And then around the two minute mark, we get a, a glassy scratch of a string, just a pervasive tone coming, which feels like it's elongating this to no end. And that becomes, like, it's a pitch you can hear and should be really annoying, but you can easily ignore it for whatever else is going on right there. If you don't pay attention to it, this is something that can just get lost. The one thing that you can't really take your ears off of is the brass. I mean, that, yeah. that's been there since the beginning. It's the it's the st- standalone, like I described, but maybe I didn't emphasize just how sort of brash it is. It's brash brass. Well, <laughs> and and it's, 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 it's like these long but 
there's still, they still feel like they're ushering something to me. And at one point, they do actually feel like they're doubled. Like, there's more body to the brass than there was in previous instances, and in previous tracks. And I would say, like, at this point, the, the action, which almost feels like we've kind of arrived at the title screen now, if this yeah. were that anticipatory uh, sensation. Well, yeah, and I think that when the song culminates, like, I think the urgency has grown over the course, at least for yeah, me. Yeah, that's right. And I, and I think... It, it has a lot to do with those horns because the horns here so far ring out longer and more dramatically than in any other track that had come before. And so yep. it adds a sense of character to this track that was hinted at previously but is really impactful here. Uh, that impact it waited for me until about the two and a half minute mark when right. snare drums come in and, uh, and hit up a, a rapid pace. That's when... The intensity of the track really hit its its full force, and I I didn't feel I almost felt it like it was the static again. I thought it was that, but it, it, it could be it could be it, what it you was said. it was being used was almost the same way as a hard snare for me drum. to describe like, that like sound a, really almost a rapid just yeah. attack on top of everything. But at that point, you do get a sensation of running again or of movement in general, and everything is increasing in volume, and that's the curious thing. It's almost like he's ever so slowly raising every single dial on his machine, but at different rates. Yeah. yeah. So the original stuff tops out sooner than everything else. And the fact that the volume it really is raising and getting loud, your ears are still prepared for this in headphones. You don't have to screw around with the volume too much. It's too gradual cool. to really be shocked by anything. But that's, that's pretty tasteful. And also it should be said that this track, Straw Dogs, at least if we're following the loose narrative that we have here, following monument builders is this idea of maybe they're building a straw dog, something that's supposed to distract from what they're really up to. Yeah. And there is this sense of maniacal or intended harm in this track a little bit too, just in the ominous way the horns ring out. Especially when those horns get replaced with that almost near voice hum. Yeah. Uh, really on the higher pitch side, that adds character there that was definitely missing. It, it it adds a sort of a self-awareness to the track that was definitely missing, but because you can't really understand anything that's going on, even though it sounds like a voice is trying to say something, it, it goes from, you know, feeling like I'm anticipating something to I feel like I'm being a little apprehensive about something. Yeah, yeah there's, there's multiple overtones here, it feels like, and I was pretty impressed by how dramatic the move toward density had been. I was pretty harsh on it in the beginning, but by the end, it really is an imp it's another impressive build, and it seems to be the thing that I'm latching onto most in this album, is just the way he develops tracks. They're not always, like, from the beginning, you could almost say eh, you don't feel like you have too much expectations of it, because especially for the first minute usually he doesn't really do much with it right. but then it's all about the next few minutes afterwards I and don't... again also at the tail end we don't really fade we just kind of release it's another way he tends to like to end things but i will i will say that that kind of gets broken up a little bit in the next track deceiver track five because that one does at least for me it starts with an emotion that i feel the synth kind of piano motif that it starts with makes me feel contemplative from the beginning of the track i'm I kind wanna... of lost in the thought of the process that led to this or the process that 
came to this piano, almost sonata kind of feel, where the way it flows. I, I don't want to use the word piano because this one feels more distinct keyboard. Like it's got that. Well, but that's what it is. I would just call that's it that's character. It was a warmer feel, and I mean warmer in tone, actually not in feel. I would describe the feel of this as actually being kind of frigid. But the foremost, the forefront figure are those faint tones, those faint pulses, just the same tone over and over and over again. Not For a lot me. happening chord-wise. We're just in normal G minor again, D, then back to G, then D, then back to G and we do that several times over but those tones are the things you can't really take your mind off of. Because they're ringing out for eight and nine seconds at a time. You get three of them in the first 24 seconds but each of them is held until the next one steps in and that length for something that is trying to, to I don't know, creep you out maybe a little bit. I don't know where it's going to go but I am in, intensely curious as to where it's going to go. From 20 seconds in in a five-minute track. Yeah. And I would say also that the way they ring out is reminiscent of the horns in the previous track. They're going on much longer than you would think they would, which even though uh, emotionally they may not ring of the same kind of tone, it's constructed in a similar manner, which I think is interesting because they are not similar sounds. But you do have one other thing going on in this intro. I mean, because I don't know if I was as excited as you guys were in general, except that there's some things you actually experience in hindsight in this album. Actually, John was one of the, the, the only of the three of us that actually picked up on this. I really didn't hear it too much. Even on headphones, it was, it was pretty faint. Maybe my ears were starting to go. But it was this faint bass that I maybe I just took as like ambience in the room, things that actually weren't in the music, but it seemed like there were these intermittent pulses between those tones. There was something in the interim going on. The faintest bass that I've ever heard. Subtlety, subtlety, subtlety. It's it like it was actually a little bit of a counterpoint idea, a little bit of syncopation, but really turned down volume wise. This is where I'm talking about the 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 laser-like precision he's yep. putting things into the songs are almost irritating because that thing that John pointed out, I didn't notice on my own. I noticed it when he pointed it out, but then I still had to struggle to find it while trying to interpret the rest of this song. And it gets overwhelming almost, even though the song itself is not overwhelming by any any means. Well, there's nothing terribly overwhelming about the idea of a focused listen. I do right. think that's obviously what he is inviting in his listeners, and it's what it's what I think most artists deserve. But it's sure. it's true that sometimes you don't always consider that based on the setup. A lot of people have a tendency to just take something that's uh, overall ambient and they're like, oh, well, this doesn't really need a focused listen, right? This can be passive because right. you feel like you're pretty much going to get everything. Not true with this guy. But you definitely interpret this completely differently passively than actively. Yeah. In fact, there was a lot of stuff I noticed in there that, frankly, I can't explain. <laughs> there were, I, I couldn't even show it to you two. Because there are, like, split-second moments of silence, I swear, I hear in this track. In between the longer tones, just from the very beginning. I swear there are beats and little showcases. Uh, like, we get a, um, a steady tap on the higher register later on. I swear it showed up before it actually showed up. It's so quiet and so muted. Little ideas seem to be popping out when I'm just sitting there holding my headphones as tightly against my ear as I possibly can to hear this track there seems to be just a cacophony of things not going on that <laughs> is just immensely interesting during this track. If you have even slight uh, hearing problems, I don't think this you're is not the gonna, album for you. You're not going to pick up a lot of stuff in uh, this one. Or at least maybe, you know what, maybe I'm crazy and I'm not hearing these things. Maybe. But 
it says something that I'm projecting ideas into music, not emotions or anything like that. Like I'm like, no, 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 he did something there. I swear to, I swear to God, like, he did something. Like there. you're hearing musical mirages. Almost. Yeah, exactly. That's and that's, that's fascinating. fascinating. That yeah. is, um, <laughs> it's it's it depends on how you want to view this track. Because on one hand, I mean, before I kind of noticed that, and even after I noticed that, you have to wonder on the you have to wonder about the overall point. And I guess in, in in first experiencing this track, and even a second, third time, my first thought was that the the prolonged intro of this track was actually rather obnoxious. I mean, I couldn't see its I couldn't see its purpose for the trees, if that makes any <laughs> sense. But the, you know, it's not until two minutes and twenty seconds we add a melody of sorts, and it's kind of its own oscillator. But it's the closest thing I could pin to a theme for this track, and we had to wait for about half the 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 track for it to arrive. So, eh, I don't know what you want to say about that. Well, I mean. <clears throat> I'll speak a little bit to the title before we, we continue to describe the track. Uh, Deceiver, I mean, I'm guessing, paired with mm-hmm. Straw Dog, I mean, it makes sense. Obviously, there's some sort of deceit here. And Monument it, builders, I mean, I could write, I could write a, a, a novel off of this. What I, and I, what I want to say is very fascinating about this is that in, in previous albums that are instrumental, the tracks lead us to a conclusion that's concrete, that may or may not be concrete. Whereas here, I'm building a narrative based on the titles and the music doesn't deter or support it. It can you can kind of it's kind of malleable enough to mold it to whatever you want it to True, be. True, which is why I tried to kind of leave both both of them separate. Right. But I, you know, I tried to focus on sonic satiability. Sure. And that's what I started to experience because you have to have patience with this track. By by three minutes and twenty two seconds, I actually started to really enjoy this. Once you are that patient, then. If, Few things start to really reward you, like these these uh, these high pitch sounds. Actually, it's the same high pitch sound from earlier, but now we're actually playing just two notes in place of one. It seems ridiculous that such a minor little change would actually uh, add to the enjoyment of this track. But here's the thing: it was playing on A over and over and over again, right? And then that's the the second interval because I think this is another this is another G minor track, like I said earlier, which that interval of A I really like, but without context for most of the track, it wasn't really doing anything for me until uh, it started to actually play with the adjacent notes so it's a and then it shifts up to b flat and later it comes back to a and then a c and then a g and there's resolution at the end there there's actually the a bit of a a song-like melody if that makes any sense or just the barest hint of it and there was some quivering there that added emotion again this is in the last stretch of it i'm i'm grasping at straws here straw Straw Dogs? I don't know. No, that's the previous uh, track. That's the previous track. But, but yeah, I think that the song definitely, as far as impact, it's not the same kind of impact previous tracks it had. But no. then again, considering it's called Deceiver, that could be intended, just like everything else was probably intended as well. And I think it's this idea of it's supposed to lead you on something different that might even seem artificial. My point is just it's fascinating that he's managed to make a happy listener out of someone who just was kind of enduring one note right and then got two and was like whoa like what other album have i actually said like oh that's a that's an achievement you know right. something so minor but in this case because of context it actually has managed to do something for me so patience i think is his ally for me though this 
This is a tactile experience. It might be my favorite track only because of how deep I want to feel every little hiccup. I want to see the sound wave associated just to know where those moments that I think something is there is actually there. It's almost you, you, with your eyes closed when you're touching a specific fabric, you can feel every little ridge and bump and little bit of texture hmm. as you're going along. And for me, this is even further than that. It's like you're going from cloth, maybe wool, maybe cotton, to sandpaper in moments. Just a moment of sandpaper where it does get a little abrasive because there was that that instance of silence you know, or that actually, little pause. That's actually a this, good analogy because it's it's almost like if you were in some kind of uh, vacuum chamber, well, if you were in a vacuum chamber, you'd be dead. But if you were in a room that wasn't offering you any sensory input, like one of those super silent rooms, I think they have one in Minnesota, which is like the most silent room you can ever go in. It's like it's negative been, eight decibels. Yeah, it's supposed to really unnerve people. They can sound, they can hear every sound that their own body is making like to hyper... Uh, hyperactive levels. But anyway, if you were in something like that and you were also, it was pitch dark, but all you had was just some kind of uh, feeling, some kind of textural feeling. You can hear, you can feel cotton, you can feel sandpaper. Then after a while, your brain is going to start interpreting that as almost a form of art. Like mm -hmm. it's going to be that important to your soul to feel something that you would probably just dismiss in any normal capacity. Like you say, ah, you feel sandpaper, eh, that's, that's okay. But in that room, in that environment, that's, you, you feel it with so much more of a force, so much more of a weight. And that's kind of what this album is. Like he's making you focus on things that you normally wouldn't appreciate because of the overall setup. It's one sensory input starting to supersede your other ones. It's it's making you rely differently on your senses, which is something I'm thoroughly enjoying, especially with the track to see. Yeah. This could all be projected, who knows, but I like it, projecting. Seems, it seems to be yeah, what okay we're taking from it. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's go to track six, Anthropocene, which... Um, relates or denotes the current geological age viewed as the period during which human activity has been the dominant influence on climate and the environment. In other words, like other... The ages, internet told me that. I, I knew, I knew generally what it was. but it, Essentially to the narrative I'm building, this is how we screwed everything up. Yeah. Well, no, it's our epoch. It's the existence of mankind and our ability to actually shape the world. Not the Cro-Magnum, but, but when we you know, got fire and started doing but, tribes but and cities. But based on the, the, the previous titles and this kind of narrative I'm making up off the top of my head, it has a negative connotation. Well, I don't it's think like we're we making screwed. it up at this point if you <laughs> add all these titles together. But so, it also, I think it's also because it begins kind of like Red Tide, which yeah. was the last track that offered us kind of something a little bit more harsh, a little bit more threatening. Yeah. Um, but this time, this is less of an arpeggio. It's actually more of a roll, a simple roll of triads. We're in A minor this time, so we've moved up a whole step, but it's still basic cadences, A minor, F major. Uh, so minor, major, minor, major, minor, major six, minor, major six, rather. But um, we, we've kind of seen this before, and not just on this album. So in, in general, I think... I actually think this is how the, the scores to many uh, to many major thrillers were were built off of. It's just right. the simple chord progression. I seem to recall this back in the Matrix. I recall this in many things. Well, sure. And then also, I'd like to interject a bit and say that when that moment, the deep warble that repeats on itself, when we get the horn honking sound that comes in shortly thereafter, 
it rings out in almost a way like the the drone did in his Inception. Remember how cliche that was? That drama. That's a good, another drone. good example. And but the thing is here, it's even more abrasive to me because it literally sounds like the start of a car alarm or a car horn, and it's like nails on a chalkboard to me. Well, now this is interesting because this is for the first time I think we're actually on we're approaching this from opposite angles. I mean, you it seems to be a little more abrasive to your ears, but to me, I actually kind of liked just the fact that it wasn't a single note this time. It felt like he was actually blaring an A and a C separated by a sixth this time and not a third. And I really liked that interval of a sixth just blaring up top, even though it was repetitive and he kept on hammering that home every, you know, again, probably for about a minute straight. I actually liked that. I liked that effect. It was, it was just the interval itself was pleasing rather than a single note. I didn't experience it as an alarm. It was something, again, kind of satisfying. I, I agree. I was enjoying it more than I was disliking it. I also viewed it as a great distraction from the pitch changes that were going on with that rapid bass current. It was climbing and falling a little bit here and there. Well, like I said, it was going through the chord changes, but I don't think there was that much to it. Like, it I don't think there was that, that much, much to, to that undercurrent, except that maybe we let, we add the distortion a little bit later, which is a yes. trick he's used before. And then there was the slight taps that get added on and the humming kind of ripples that were also working on top of that. Like, the horn the really was a great, I, I want to say, distraction. It's the only way I can describe it because it was allowing bits to change without me noticing so that the bits that were changing ever so slightly were actually a surprise. Well, I think my biggest problem here is that they were so distracting to me that it actually affected my experience. It reminds me of um, a performer who I can't go more than a few episodes without mentioning, the one and only Nasty Canasta, who was on episode... Oh, the 183. And she brought us a Donker Mag. By Diane Edward. Um, but she has a burlesque act where she's wearing this beautiful classic burlesque outfit. I believe it's a fan dance, though. I can't remember specifically. But the music she strips to is a car alarm. Yes, that 90s cliche car alarm that you think of when I mention it. Don't do an impression of it, Steve. I see your lips pursing. It's, it's even used in those fake laser gun yeah. noises, and it cycles through the whole darn thing. My mom threw all those out on me. It was terrible. And so that's the that gives you this idea of trying to pursue beauty and art through pain and suffering. I mean, I'm, I'm dr- making it a little overly dramatic, but this idea of if that repetitive car alarm is uncomfortable for you, but you're still watching a beautiful woman get undressed, you have to try and process both at the same time. Well, it's an important analogy to make for, even if it's not necessarily this track for you, perhaps in earlier examples. We yeah. all seem to be pretty much on the same page with those harsh cuts that we got earlier when we had the little bits of silence, those those split points. Um, and I think if you, you have to look past that in order to see the beauty behind it, in order to see the beauty in the tones, or even to see the melody, which once it appears, you know, you still have the undercurrent, which may still be annoying, but you need to look past it. It's an exercise. And that's something that happened here. Until we get to the later part of the song where it starts to build and change, at this point I'm kind of suffering to hear the good through what's making me uncomfortable. And so it's reminiscent of that experience. I get that you guys aren't getting the same experience. It's just for me, I don't enjoy that horn honking sound and so I was struggling to stay with this track initially. It's another example of the the sensory dichotomy he's trying to build right here. Mm -hmm. Even though we're only working within the sense of sound, it's just the idea, he keeps pairing up two different, very different feelings in his music, and it's just doing great work to set context and to allow simple things to have a lot more meaning than you would expect them to have. Which is basically what we said in the last track. But let me let me just um, 
I'm gonna say something positive here and something a little bit negative because for starters, I did once again really start to enjoy the individual elements. Again, part of it is also conditioning. You get used to it after a while, so that's one reason why you might enjoy one element in the, in the beginning was a little bit off-putting and you're like, really, does this have to keep going? And then later on, it's kind of pleasing, but also because he's he's doing something a little bit different with it. It's not just the brass playing the uh, that sixth anymore. It felt like they were actually kind of comping for the first time, like they were actually playing off of one another as independent instruments. It was neat. But now the thing, the critique of mine is that I'm also growing a bit harsher, uh, I guess particularly at this track, at this point in the album, because of the small incremental ways in which this album is revealing things, that prospect is becoming a little bit predictable. Yeah. And it's relying so heavily on, you know, when the next door opens, there will be a light. <laughs> and there will be amazement and wonder. But in the course of this slow approach, there was always that one guy in the in the group who who yawns and it's like what, what are you talking about we're going towards something really really great and it's like what my legs hurt so it's, it's like there's always that one person who gets like exhausted by the approach despite that there may be something at the end of the tunnel and the thing here is there's not always something at the end of the tunnel it feels like every track is actually constructed to really just focus on the approach and then you have to get really specific and minute and those are the things you have to pick out of the approach itself there's not necessarily a resolution and that's been, uh, I don't know, it's a trick he's gone back to a few times, but again, that may just be the project of the album as a whole. Sure. I mean, I get a sense of that also. Like here, there's a sense of movement to the track, which again, I could just have cars on the brain because of the horn honking sound yeah. as I'm per perceiving it. But also, you know, we get to a certain point, like previous tracks, where a ton of stuff drops out and the outro becomes very ambient. This to the point of, you know, almost oddness because it gets so ambient that you almost think you're listening to silence towards the end of the track which is just i don't know like i mean he does ambient tones well he'd done them earlier but i feel like at the end of this track i'm just kind of going okay and you know and which isn't necessarily a bad thing but it left me wanting i think this track on a whole i didn't really enjoy and at this point i think i realized something about my musical preferences right I think that for me, this is kind of turning into an ASMR experience. For those of you who are yeah, listeners yeah. don't know what ASMR is, it's Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response. In layman's terms, it's you're hearing something and it's causing a sensation, a usually mm -hmm. an euphoric sensation in your body, a physical sensation just from an auditory experience. Mm -hmm. It's akin to auditory tactile synesthesia, which is the connection of sound and touch with your body. People have uh, multiple forms of synesthesia. Synesthesia is the crossing of two different senses. Yeah. In this case, the idea of touch and sound, one causing another to be experienced, that's kind of what's going on which here. Which is a more me. common form, I think. It's barely even worth it to call it synesthesia at that point. I mean, it is, but it's 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 more the matter of, like, most of us kind of get a sensation of touch out of hearing because, after all, it is, it is movement anyway. Mm -hmm. Like, sound waves they move they strike you like you, like if you hear a bass in a room you can feel the physicality of right. it it's more it's more textural than it is sound but what i'm getting here is i'm i'm super invested in this album at this moment i'm thoroughly mm -hmm. enjoying it now it's hard to explain musically while i'm enjoying it even though that's what we've been doing but the first time i listened to this album i knew it was something i was going to be going back to and it's starting, and I have to be upfront with that, it's starting to legitimately color my rating here. 
right. I mean, that's mm. fair enough to admit. I think also there's there's something to mention about what John was saying before is that there are actually tons of YouTube channels devoted to that and that like women playing with tissue paper and whispering into a yeah. microphone or men with a low bass tone talking to a microphone at length reciting it's, dialogue. It's therapeutic for some people. Yeah. It's fetishized for other people. It, it, I don't anything. Yeah, and I think it's, it is it is really interesting to bring that up because I feel like I've gotten similar experiences from moments on this album, though not the album as a whole. Um, but let's, let's... It's just a shade too subtle for me, I think, for me to take that extra leap with this album to right. say that it was quite so heavily involved. I don't know if it was affecting me. Th- well, but but that's actually, why, that's I, I let, me, the... let me hold my tongue because there is a moment coming up. I think this is actually a good transition to Weeds. And that's why I brought it up now yeah. because Weeds is... The final track, track seven. E- it's easily the most unique ideas that are presented on this album. But let me just say one thing about the beginning because this is... Uh, I'll get the critique out of the way before I move into the compliment here because if you were just focusing on the beginning, like maybe the first two minutes, there's... You can kind of predict this as going by what we've had so far. Mm-hmm. There will be a tone, it will grow, and it will fade. <laughs> I'm sorry yeah. if that sounds condescending. Obviously, this is, this is overall a very interesting project, and I have some glowing things to say about about uh, the following segment of this track, but here's the thing. As observant and even-handed as we try to be, there is a component of this podcast that is based on taste, and when the beginning of every piece be- generally is beginning the same, even if there are little subtle differences from, from one track to the previous, there is a little bit of a problem for me in the long haul by just having each and every track kind of begin similarly. It sort of restarts itself. By the end, I've come to feel that these tracks don't really set you up terribly well, but they do deliver. And in this track, I'm tempted to just kind of skip over the beginning. You do, though, get a preview for it. You get foreshadowing, and that's in the chords. The, The synths start going through these chord changes, some gripping but subtle shifts, and I can almost find some emotion in the emptiness that it sets me up for, but it's all because he's prepping you for something else. Well, yeah, because the beginning of the track is reminiscent of what the first track did, but on a much more minor, slower, and lower scale. Yeah. And I think also... Because of how long this goes, it does to me drag. But I will agree that the intentional. I can I can postulate that it's intentional because of what comes next. But again, in that moment, from moment to moment on this record, which I've talked about several times, it's very easy to get lost, distracted, or even disinterested if you're not looking at the big picture. And from moment to moment, sometimes that's difficult. And then we get the voices. So that the, is the crux of this uh, this piece. Well, we don't, haven't not, had vocals yet, so obviously that's new and exciting. I, it, but it's not vocals as a form of lyrics. Oh, it's their vocals as singing. They're it is, broken. They're spliced. They're contorted. They're uh, random. They feel like he's legitimately going for a random idea. It might only be the expansion, in fact, of just one syllable. Yeah, and what's interesting also is that though when they happen one, then one, and then one, it sounds almost human, but as they speed up or get mixed together, it almost sounds like a, um, a gaggle of geese honking yeah. in the way of kind of how random but not it is. Because, I mean, when geese fly, you know, they are communicating with each other. A lot of the honking is to communicate and to, to navigate, and but it does sound random to the untrained ear, and I get a sense of that from here, which made it interesting because I was trying to interpret it as human initially, but because of the way it flows, it becomes less and less human and feels more animalistic or even electronic. Well, musically, this was actually one of the most interesting pieces of texture I've seen uh, in many episodes, come to think of it. I mean, I loved Eno to death, but even Eno wasn't about texture, it was about story. This is electronic music at its finest, I thought. In fact, from the one minute 50 mark 
to the tail end of the track, it's very difficult for me to even convey this, this experience into words, apart from just that single element of texture, the motions that it goes through, the swells, the way those vocals almost become more real to me as time goes on, and not actually fading into something that is, that is fake and, and unhuman. And combine that with the overtaking of synth and this final expulsion at the end, I think this entire segment was actually one of the finest examples of computer and electronic music that we've seen on this podcast, and it's not for everybody. But if you can tap into it, it's kind of a mind trip. Every moment sort of cascades into the next, and it is deeply emotional. And also, what a finale. You know, this is your last track. This is the last thing he leaves you with. And the volume swells are enough to kind of overtake you in their own right. What's really interesting is that he's depicting a kind of auditory deception almost. The idea that that human, what we're guessing is human vocal, distorts into what sounds like natural or mechanical. And even later, around the 3 minute 45 second mark, everything, all the tones together, which Steve was just describing in this plethora of sound, warps. The whole the thing is a whole warps as if it's being played through a giant fan. Like you know when you talk in a fan and it, yeah. your voice kind of breaks. No, it's a good description no, of this because of the way it buffers. This buffers in a way, but it's not parts of the song. It's the entire song that buffers, which is really interesting. Yeah, it, like every aspect of it in many ways. Like it's not just it's not just the vocals. It's not just the synths in the background. It's that quiver that I spoke of earlier. It's it, you could see it as quivering, as buffering. It's probably just a piece of code in the end that he wrote that that looping oscillator i guess and it's just it's applied to so many things throughout the album and it seems to have hit i don't i hate saying epic proportions but it really has because again we don't really see finales like this no we've had a lot of very humble finales if that makes any sense in a lot of our albums albums where we just say oh they just wanted to kind of end it you know but i think looking back on it i think a really a grand finale like this is actually it's a breath of fresh air after all of that. And what's interesting about this grand finale is that that sound, that buffering, continues even after we get this big sweeping sound bite that then kind of wraps up the track as it fades out. Yeah. But that fading out is still buffering until it gets to almost silence before the track ends, which is, he also had not really ended a track like that before. It's sort of like that final wind wind sound, the yeah. windy thing that we heard kind of in the beginning of the album that sort of But m- began, much more exaggerated. Much here. more exaggerated because, again, the volume swells. It feels like the track has gotten has taken the album to a level that if you thought you were comfortable when you first began the album, if you thought your ears were just hit that sweet spot, I don't know if you'd really feel that way by the end. But here's the thing. It's so gradual that I don't think you'd ever, at any particular point, be inclined to turn it down. At least for me, I, some people, their ears are a little more sensitive. I, I, I like listening to music loud. I like, I guess, like any other up to red, red-blooded American male. I don't know. But the point is, by the end of this album, I think that it was just on the edge of being a little bit too much considering mm-hmm. wherever the uh, the the volume was at but it was so effective that for the first time I didn't feel like I needed to do any manipulation myself like I didn't need to like oh I love that part I should listen to it louder it just did it for me and it did it in a way that I didn't expect all right well I guess this is a good place to go into our wrap up am I volunteering to go first Unless Steve would like to. I don't have to. I know you don't have to. It's your In fact, I was, almost, Thumbs the rules. I was almost completely silent about Weeds, and I'm going to get into that mind. But All right. Yeah. I'll go. Yeah? I okay. will go. I love when Steve volunteers. Saves me the trouble. Yeah, I'm a little prepared for this one. Um, all right. I, I have to sell. <laughs> Good. Maybe I'll help. Maybe I'll help you out. I can only hope. 
All right, so I have to speak about this album as a whole. That's what our wrap-ups are for. I think Really? The, yes. Sorry. I think the album as a whole was a great exercise. It absolutely has constraints. You can feel that after a certain point, but really... All art has constraints. They work within some measure of what they have created. I mean, this podcast has shown that for the most part, we're actually not really kind to albums or artists that jump wildly in genre from track to track. It's very rare that they can actually keep their identity. And here, there's no arguing for identity in a work like this. He seems to know who he is, and the work shows it. It's concerted, and like I said earlier, very meticulous. I sometimes think it's a little too in love with itself. It's hard to glean the purpose of those extra 30 seconds of oscillating sometimes, you know, that'll bring them around. But I, of course, I think that's, I don't think that's the idea. That's not the purpose they serve. I realize that some measure of waiting and wondering is required for what the album actually wants to do to you next. But the truth is, I can kind of lose the direction of the story after the third or fourth time he's done that. Every track is kind of a restart, a blank slate. So strangely, the album flows and yet almost lacks continuity because each track is its own thing. You can see the theme as, as a whole, of course, but I think the, the, the lack of continuity from track to track is because it's, it's oscillating. Like, that is the way in which its arc is constructed. And I suppose it's tough for us to see storytelling in terms of long, even sine waves. But the truth is, for me... There are spikes in those sine waves that intrigue me throughout, and for once, a finale finally pushed me over the edge. So I think this album has just attained four status for me. It's a solid four for a very well-thought-out, artistically consistent, intellectually stimulating, and occasionally stirring album. I think if it had been more stirring more often, I'd be looking at the upper echelon, but for now, it's just a really good album that I would recommend to most for the experience. All right, my turn. Um, I actually had to dive back into looking at some ratings for previous electronic albums just to get an idea, but not many, just a few that hit me in a certain way. This album is reminiscent to me, not in tone, not in sound, not even necessarily in instrumentation, just in experience, to stuff I gleaned from Boards of Canada. Now, I didn't love that album as much as you guys did, though we were around the same level as far as rating it. But what I got from Boards of Canada was an experience. And this album, for sure, was also an experience. And like that album that we had done, I don't know that I'd love the work enough to go back to it again and again, as John has said that he would. However, I definitely did get a unique and interesting experience and perspective from it. Um, moments that, if it was any other construction, any other album, any other time and place, maybe... I would probably have been more down on it. But because even at moments where I didn't truly like the track, it did bring me around or serve a purpose. So even the tracks that I say I emphatically don't enjoy, they still kind of served their purpose and did what they were supposed to. So it's hard to argue against, especially in something that's so con concise. Because the album as a whole is A, only seven tracks, B, only 37 minutes. And so it is like those moment-to-moment things surgically precise in what it wanted to execute while steve said he didn't understand some of those 30 second drones they definitely had an intention from every moment there's nothing here that's here by accident i feel like because if there was it would be padding and the album would be much longer you'd have two or three more long tracks or some short tracks or some interludes and there's none of that here so i am in a similar place to steve because 
while I could go on and on and on about what I heard and how it made me feel, I don't think that's the point. I think the point is for me to tell you to go listen to it. I think the point here is that it conveys a unique musical experience that I had really not gotten up until this point on this podcast. And that's something that warrants it being over four, at a four or higher at least, because it's unique experience that, you know, in previous Electronica records we've talked about, they've kind of washed over me or flown past me. I kind of missed the point. But I was able to get wrapped up in this. And I think as an instrumental background, the passive listen is enjoyable. The active listen is work. But both are good for what they do. And I don't think I've ever gotten that split before where there's an active side and an intent-focused side that both work independently and together. And I think that's what's truly interesting. So I'm putting this just a little bit higher than Steve's at a 4.1 because I think it's broaching that next level thing. And that's why I don't want to just put it at a 4. I want it to be a little bit past that because I feel like it's doing something really interesting. And honestly, I would listen to every album he put out going forward and maybe going back just to get the experience of it if it's similar to this. He's used acoustic instruments before. Maybe that should be a selling point too. Yeah. like to see what he does with them. That would be really cool. Well, you get to either sell me on doing it higher or lower. I don't know. I, I'm going <laughs> to go for it, John. Honestly, your pick. Okay. I didn't talk much about weeds, as I mentioned earlier, because for me, well, you two summed it up really, really well, both from the cerebral side and the emotional side. And from, from my point of view, weeds was the culmination of both of those aspects in this album. And while I will say yes to Steve's uh, caveat that it's cohesive but not, it is unique little ideas that are kind of not connected to one another very coherently, um, that's, a, that's a solid actual thing for me. Because on the one hand, the full experience of the album through and through from one to seven is something really special for me it's it's seven tracks it's 37 minutes long mm-hmm. it's actually one of the shortest things we've done in a long long time um and like matt said it's not really padded it's not fluffed out everything is there for a very specific reason but at the same time each of these individual snippets of the overall weight of the album each individual track being just part of the weight i feel like i'm getting both the album is more than the sum of its parts and again less than the sum of its parts because certain parts are just so monumental to me and the piece as a whole feels that same exact way i can't i can't adequately describe would my, you say he's my built a monument would you say that yeah yeah i actually would because like i said it's 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 a it was an experience i don't think i've had too often and back when we did things like Scale the Summit or Boards of Canada or even like Kending Ray or Afix Twin with the real texture heavy pieces we've done. This was something that was like wholly different for me. And I have a general theme with those albums of giving them four to 4.25s. Looked it up. I think I gave three, three out of the four, 4.25. So like I think this is significantly better in many ways in those previous works and I laud those previous works that we've reviewed so for me I I feel like 
just because of my connection, I have to go higher than that and go just a little bit to a 4.3. 4.3. It's this was such a unique thing for me. I I can't I can't say otherwise. All right, you bumped me up a little bit. Or if maybe you didn't bump it, maybe I was just me sitting here kind of pondering and also checking my uh, my rating list. I think I think actually this is a 4.25 for me. So I ended up above Matt, after all, unless uh, Matt wants to move it. Nope. I'm solid with a 4.1. I all feel right. like my, my inability the to more enjoy I think, it outside of the art. Well, you made it. It's also yeah. kind of because of the points you made. Even though yeah. the points that you made were enough to convince it to be over a 4. I appreciate meticulousness. Sure. I appreciate the, uh, the work that he put into this. And yeah. I do think there have been other things that have kind of like at a glance been in the same ballpark but been a little more left up to whim than what he did mm-hmm. and i think i see i see the man behind the curtain and for me that's a good thing All so right. for me this actually is it's not quite upper echelon but 4.25 for a good album with uh with good selling points and a great finale i think that's that's what sold me on that on that little move all right. Um, well, I think also something that's interesting to this album and in general, which we haven't really talked about much, though its effect has come up a lot, is I think a lot of this did come down to volume and layering. Yeah. And I think the way the different individual volumes of sections of songs and pieces can kind of affect your perception. And I think it's a good jumping off point to discuss how playing with volume, specifically volume, you know, can affect your enjoyment or lack of enjoyment, of a song or piece. Specifically in in this album's case, Straw Dogs was one of those pieces that felt like the entire track was gaining steam and gaining volume over the course. Getting louder and louder gradually. And that's very slow burn of volume. Not build, volume, purely. Just how loud it is on your headphones or in your stereo is kind of a unique factor in a lot of today's music. Usually it's just one level, and then if you are going to change it up, it's going to be used as a specific counterpoint to something else. Well, I'm glad you brought up ASMR and synesthesia before, because synesthesia, you know, again, it's it's less relevant, I think, to discuss it in terms of sound meets touch, because sound waves themselves are a form of touch. It's just another way of of sensing it. Sight and sound, those are really ones that, where that's more where the term uh, synesthesia is applied. But sound and touch, it's very prevalent, especially prevalent in bass. Volume makes a difference, and it makes, it, it affects us because it is literally reaching out and touching us in a certain way. You feel the vibrations down to the fiber of your bones, down to your to your heart and your chest. You feel that when there is higher volume. But the question is, when does that become a little bit more overblown with art, and when does that overshadow composition? Because if you can only do that with even like simple textures, simple things, then is that <clears throat> the form of composition? Do you would obviously the loudness war is probably going to enter into this conversation at some point. The idea that each album in, in the pop community is released in many ways to kind of overshadow their competition simply by being louder. That if you look overall at albums, pop albums for the last twenty years, we're releasing stuff that is just louder and louder and louder. How far can this go? Uh, when will our our ears just finally say enough? Or can it ever be enough? Well, think about the trope of when someone's driving down the street and they pull up next to you and their bass is turned all the way up in their car. You don't, it obscures the music itself, so you can't even hear the music, and it literally vibrates your car one car over. And 
it's unpleasant most of the time. People hate that. Meanwhile, the person in the car... They have a different enjoyment of it right. because they're hearing something differently. Right, and I think that's really interesting because perspective can affect volume as well. Yes. And I think that's where sometimes we're on opposite ends when we get to something that we consider, uh, I'm doing finger quotes for all the listeners, a wall of sound. This idea that while a wall of sound, you know, this something really loud or cacophonous could be unpleasant to some people, might be pleasant to others based on your own perceptions. And I think perception plays really heavily into volume. Obviously, things are can be objectively loud and soft, but also, you mentioned hearing problems before, jokingly, but if you do have hearing issues, you're going to lose stuff in music that others yeah. may not, and so you may have less enjoyment because you can't actually perceive the things that other people are. Yeah, and I don't even know if you can say objectively that things are loud and things are soft. I guess it, not, It all yeah. is kind of subjective. We only know that because of what we're sort of relatively used to. The instruments and their standard capabilities. Like, if you're in a room, you know the sort of the mid-range, like, not an overbearing amount of effort for the artist, for the performer, you know, to the point where they don't have to, like, really tax themselves. And if they're if they're a trumpet player, they're going to run out of breath, you know, but they're that is loud. It's about yeah. as loud as they can go. So yeah, you could say that's loud for that instrument because they're probably not going to be able to go too much further with it. And then we could say like a nice mid-range would be somewhere where they're comfortable and can play at that level for a good amount of time, but you can still hear them and it still sounds crisp. That's about the only objectivity that I think you could you could attach to it. There's also the factor that genetically, and it does apply to men more than women because we are less able to multitask. Genetically, we are only able to focus on one of our senses at a time with our full undivided attention. Just like when you get lost and you're thinking about and looking around, you turn the radio down in your car because it helps you think better, even though auditory input is not affecting your eyesight in any way, your brain thinks it I does. I do that all the time. I do yeah. that when I'm, when I'm parallel parking. You can't have the radio loud. You feel like you need your, your ears just because maybe there's somebody, you know, that is walking behind the car. You don't know. If you just but, heard them, that would be a chance. But that's just, that's just your preferences. When it comes to artists and genres of music and musical styles, volume control is really, really important, especially in certain areas. When you're talking about metal or punk that music was kind of built to be loud mm -hmm. just because of the instruments chosen like steve said some instruments are just going to be louder only because of the sound waves themselves that they make yeah that's why orchestras are positioned in the way they're positioned everything is sort of you know you have the the kettle drums way at the back the brass is always way at the back probably really hurting the ears of all the instruments in front of them but it's not for them it's for the audience yes. and for us it's all very sonically pre-arranged but it also applies to the content of the music itself. Punk and metal, while it is a little bit of a trope, they have a tendency to deal with more negative things emotionally, and a higher volume and a more physical aspect to that volume promotes that. Sure. I mean, it's this kind of aggressive nature that a lot of those songs have. I mean, I can think of a specific song that when listening to it at a lower volume, I actually enjoy less than when I blast it. There's a song that came out in the 2000s. It was a cover, actually, of an 80s song, but the band Orgy covered a song called Blue Monday. The original song had a heavy, pervasive rhythm, but in the remake, Orgy had kind of a, a low-tone intro that then built into a heavy drum roll and pounding drums. When you turn the volume really up, you get the impact of those drums so palpably that it, it really affects the listen. And I think, you know, that's a, a specific example where I could say that louder is better. When I listen to that song at a lower volume, I actually get less out of it. That's, that's tough for 
for showing music to people. Sure. Because also, I think a lot of that is based on conditioning. Yeah. In other words, we tend to want music louder when we're a little bit prepared for it. True. When we know the section that is coming, then we're like, oh, kick it up, kick it up. But then someone in the same exact room who doesn't know what's coming, then they're like, oh, please turn it down. Turn it down. Startled even. Yeah. They could be startled. They're they're not feeling it the same way you're feeling it because it's it's conditioning. It's your neural pathways are set. They're primed to enjoy this. There's anticipation there. They're already, but yet for the other person, it's borderline fear. It's unnerving. And that's the same exact piece of music at the same exact volume. But So I think conditioning has to come down to it in the end. Uh, that said, I mean... I, I don't want to say I was conditioned to it, but when the new Star Wars comes out, if that Williams score doesn't hit me right in the face from the very beginning, like, I'm going to be disappointed. I mean, oh, yeah, when, I, when I actually saw The, the Force <laughs> Awakens, I actually, I thought it could have stood, stood to be louder. And then I realized that's because every single time I've seen a Star Wars film in private, I've had it connected to the stereo and everything, yeah. because you want to really bring that out to the point where actually the theater wasn't enough for me. Right, exactly. <laughs> no, and I think conditioning is a good uh, a good example, because all of the different volume-related differences we've talked about in tracks definitely have referred back to our own experiences with them. But then there's the tropes that show up, like the soft, slow, pretty part of every mid-90s to mid-aughts, you know, alternative rock song that just shows up it's like all right we're gonna go we're rocking out here's a course and then the bridge comes so the bridge has to go from wall of sound to something quiet and a simple little melody maybe you're down to one instrument it's like they know that the wall of sound volume has to be curtailed with a soft bridge well that's also because any trope that exists in music is born out of something that was done well essentially that was a brilliant idea that was that probably was mostly perfected, I'd say, in the 80s, maybe the 70s. And then in the 90s, and even into the aughts, you know, we used it to an exhausting degree. It's like the idea that punk in the 80s and early 90s was uh, exciting and new and impressive. But then by the aughts into now, certain punk becomes repetitive and almost uh, aggravating because we've come so far that those earlier things seem cliche conditioned to the point of exhaustion right it's also probably the fact that most punk was written with small venues in mind and right. that, that acoustic space does not translate well to arenas that's, and that's like something that. that was actually said about uh david byrne said that about um the talking heads and his band and a lot of the bands in the new wave scene were designed to play in similar venues as punk venues actually down in basements where you had like concrete walls this Everything is the acoustic edgy. environment everything had the harsh edges just stone and, and concrete and uh, and steel. That was the acoustic environment that was they were designed to play in, not, interestingly, in arenas. He actually did a TED Talks about this. David Byrne said that when he started translating his pieces, when he got a little bit more popular and he wasn't playing in those small venues anymore, he was invited to larger venues and then he felt like he enjoyed his own music less. Like it was, something was lost there because that's not the environment he wrote for. Well, and I can speak to the opposite uh, way an environment can affect it as well, going from larger to smaller. I mean, as I've said on the podcast many times, I, I'm a big fan of Corn, though their newer stuff I'm not as much in love with. But I got into them when they first started, and when they first started, they played small venues, but they very quickly became an arena band because they were easy to put on those massive rock tours with ten bands playing arenas around the world. And that's the first couple times I saw them was in that state, and they really rung out really palpably, again, a word I like to use when talking about rock music. But then many years later, after I was 
you know, maybe my fandom was waning a little bit. I saw them at a small club venue, and it was almost oppressive how loud it was. It's like they started to design their music for a louder, larger environment, mm. and when putting it in the smaller environment, became almost, you know, intrusive. The funny thing is I actually wish there was more of a reversal here where people accepted or preferred classical music to be a little louder yeah. and wanted pop to actually be turned down a little bit because people have a tendency to see classical music as always oh, this light little delicate thing that is played in the background of, of cocktail parties. <laughs> There's some pretty intense classical music out there, but it's just when people visualize it as a certain volume, then they've already pretty much made up their mind about it as yeah. this background thing. Oh, you know, it's, it's musical wallpaper. But if you actually bring out the volume, you'll get the same intensity. You'll perhaps get more intensity, Not more pop. of a story yeah. than you would in the pop track. Actually, I would pretty much say almost in every case, because the pop song has pretty simple story to tell. Most of these pieces tend to be upwards of 10 minutes. Yeah, I love Blasting. I've, I've recently fallen in love with Bach and just random, random pieces. I've been just going on Spotify and randomly doing stuff that I find there yeah. and random stuff on YouTube when I'm at home. And it's just like, I'll play it for five minutes. No more than that. Yeah, It's, it's not appropriate for every classical piece. But, but yeah, yeah, certainly no. try it with I, some. Just try listening to it in a different way as you usually would. But to harp on classical music for a moment, since we are, I find that classical musicians, classical performers tend to have a better command over volume than many other performers because often they, they less have to rely on amplifiers. They don't ha necessarily have to turn a knob. They actually have to, you know, use the physicality of yeah. their fingers or whatever they're doing in order to really be pretty astute with the changes over the long course of time. But the thing is, it also is limiting because then you're down to just what a human can do, provided you're listening to it in an unamplified environment. But for a another kind of performer, you know, you could always just tell the sound guy in the back, hey, really kick it up in that moment. So it, it's... It's not necessarily more or less, I mean, it is more skill. It's more like performing skill, but you could still, I guess, accomplish the same thing by amplifying it. It's just, I think it's one of the biggest problems for the experience of classical music because it forces you to kind of rely on purely the capabilities of a human being. That's challenging. Unless you have cannons. Unless you have cannons. Like and, the uh, 1812 Overture, which is... Uh, I mean, an example. <laughs> well, I think for me, it would be... John reminded me most famously, recently was used in um, V for Vendetta, which is yeah. it's the moment where V blows up the Parliament building. He uses that song blaring all over the speakers, and he's almost conducting the explosions, which is brilliantly done. But again, that's all volume and impact. And I think... So imagine the premiere of that piece for people who haven't had the conditioning or the experience of, you know the live music of today or pop albums blaring at you. It must have been un yeah. unnerving as hell. That's it. Who knows? Or maybe they were riveted in their seat. Yeah, right. I, I believe it was a very successful premiere. Oh, I'm Most, sure. But Sean, yeah, Tchaikovsky was pretty loved at that point. But I would say that there was an element of shock value at that time that probably Absolutely. less exists now because when we hear that song, we know it's coming. True. Well, yeah, that's because we've heard that song a bunch of oh, times. Right, of course. Obviously yeah, so maybe it's, it's also conditioning for us, too. It's also but the only piece I actually know of that uses a cannon. How do you forget something like that? That's true. Like, how point. do you do that? But we did kind of switch, I guess, into environment a little bit. I, but since we're there, I do want to say one more thing because it kind of relates back to that David Byrne TED Talk still. And that's how classical music is also sort of 
some people struggle with the acoustic experience of it in large venues as well. Just like David Byrne himself would kind of struggle when he moves to the arena. Well, there's a lot of large venues, like even Carnegie Hall, even things just as big as that. Not arenas necessarily, but they're used for a lot of pieces that were actually meant more for chamber, Mm -hmm. right? More for small rooms, tiny little recital halls. And there is this push, I I forget the name, but there's this push around uh, New York City area and other urban areas, people trying to start up more chamber ensembles where they will actually be like, we will play in your home. As long as you, you know, provide a little bit of a fee there, obviously, just for the, the privilege of having them arrive in your house, then you can hold a little bit of a party and you can play music in the background while things are going on, or you can have everybody sit perfectly attentive, sitting on the floor with legs crossed. It's it's really an intimate thing. And I, there's stuff in modern music that kind of harkens back to that. Um, a lot of folk and indie rock bands that I know of, friends I'm I'm personally close to, they do a lot of house concerts, and it's more yeah, that's, common. Yeah, that's what now. I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but I'm saying even in modern music, you know, with uh, there's a like uh, Eli August and the Abandoned Buildings we've talked about, the Rose West, the Wasties. These are all bands who have done house concerts, you know, as a main form of performing because that kind of music really lends to a fun party, in, but intimate environment. Yeah, and that's why you actually see a lot of musicians, besides the obvious fact that they don't have the you know the popularity to get into venues doing their music whether solo or with one or two other people helping them like in the middle of streets and parks and things like that busking Busking, because when you you can find certain places especially parks and fountains like a lot of that stuff without maybe even realizing it was designed to be acoustically intriguing Mm -hmm. or not designed but just happened to turn out that way it happened to come out to be acoustically intriguing one of my um, favorite pieces by uh, Two Cellos, mm-hmm. the guys on YouTube, yep, yep. which do mm-hmm. like these great covers, is their cover of Welcome to the Jungle when they're just in the middle of a park area, but yeah. just in the middle of a walkway area. It's Two Cellos doing a cover of Welcome to the Jungle, but sounds so cool, and it's just such a cool-looking experience in that video. And it's all based on acoustics. Yes. Yeah. And it's just the control of the acoustics that they're going through. Or when they did, I forget what the song was, but it was one versus Beethoven's Fifth. Mm-hmm. One song versus, it was like the back and forth. And the volume is the same between the two pieces, even though one is a classical piece that was written with the classical quote-unquote practicality versus a modern piece which was made in the last like 30 years or something like that yeah it was just by having that duality of the volume between the two it it, it just works That's even the though they're aesthetically very different ideas that pair they've achieved i mean they have classical training behind them but they're they've managed to be contenders in a whole pretty, lot of love it was a lot, lot of love. love there you go well, like I said, they've managed to be contenders in a pretty pop-dominated community mm-hmm. where volumes, expectations that they're going to be loud and overwhelming, and they have overwhelmed uh, many audiences. Well, it's just like postmodern jukebox kind of flips the pop ideal on the on True, its head, uh, making it more, more jazz as well. Yeah, more jazz and mellow, and they kind of mellowify, if that's a word. If not, I made it up. Sure, they mellow um, out. Um, Songs that are intended to be a little louder, pop songs that are brought to be more easygoing. Which well, actually, that's a good example because that's proof that you can achieve the same impact, perhaps even more impact, by lessening. Yeah. So that's uh, doing less. Good. We needed an, ex- we needed an example to prove that. I'm glad you you're brought welcome. it up. And if the goal is to intensify the classical environment or whatever classical piece you're trying to play, I think this pushed back to the chamber and smaller venues is really aids the art there. 
I don't, yeah, I don't think many people realize that, that classical music was not made for, you know, 50 people, every single piece that was written. Like, it's, it's not just done that way. Bach made a lot of stuff that way, and then he made a lot of pieces that were for, no, four. Four people? Four people. Hey, hey, what did the classical musician say when he was leaving the room? What? I'll be Bach. Oh, Lord. Uh. All right, well, now that I've killed this conversation... You seriously have. <laughs> How can we continue? <laughs> um, uh, all terrible jokes aside, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about what we're doing next week. But before that, Steve, do you have a spam mail for us? Mizatang 7 Days has to say, all medications have aspect effects. You can find Mizatang 7 Days supplements. You can find them. You can, you can find them. Oh, well, that's good <laughs> well, no, It doesn't tell me where you could say you can find them. What helps make you think that ephedra is bad for yourself? What helps you make you think that ephedra is bad for yourself? I think this person is on drugs. Oh, I think that's Syntax is here. a definite problem here. Context, too. You can find them. <laughs> Doesn't matter where. It's like, hey, idiot, you have the internet. You can find them. Yeah, well. Right. But where? But where? The machines are condescending now. All right. Well, They always were. Yep. Next week, we are going to have our final guest of 2016. And he is a crossover guest from... Crash Chords Autographs. Um, I interviewed Mike Ragnetta in episode 43, and, um, you know, he was a delightful guest to have on. We talked a lot about many different things, including his YouTube channel, uh, the PBS Idea Channel. That one. Yep. I don't know why I tripped over that. Anyway, <laughs> um, but we also talked about his composition background and how involved he was in music and theater. And so he once, I believe it was on the air I brought up this show and said we'd like to have him on. And he was super game. And so we organized our schedules to have him on next week. And he's bringing us Without My Enemy by Made in the Heights, which is their most recent record. And I'm really excited to break down music with Mike because Idea Channel, if you haven't, watched it it's on youtube go check it out before next week because he's an interesting way of approaching certain topics from video games to music to tv to literature and there's just a certain modern intellectualism to his show that i think is missing in a lot of modern media and i'm really excited to break down music with him i would agree with that assessment especially considering it's probably he's probably the most relevant guest we could ever invite to do this particular thing because he has a background in critical theories he's kind of used to thinking about art and the way it affects people the the multiple benefits in which it could have it's not it's not a singularly minded thing and i think mike above all other uh, artists out there all of the content creators knows that so should be a trip i'm just gonna spend most of the time squeeing because i'm a huge fan <laughs> yeah well i mean that that's valid too i pretty much did that when he came on autographs when i figured hey, out i think to... i showed him to you guys originally or maybe no, you had heard him in past i had heard him because he did a crossover with extra credits which was a show I was that's right that's right i remember that now yeah, after i learned how to subscribe to people markiplier was first uh the idea channel was number two um so we're gonna bring him on next week and we're really excited to uh share that with you guys so please tune in and remember as always music is life and, and life, life is, is good, good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. 
If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.